Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Road podcast. This week, we are joined by Dr. Diane Culver, an associate professor out of the School of Human Kinetics from the University of Ottawa. I'm really excited to share today's conversation with Dr. Culver. We jump into some theoretical areas around the social learning theory, the lifelong learning theory, and Peter Jarvis's three dimensions of learning. And it was really interesting because I think it can be, you know, we, we focus around coach education today, but it can be applied to, to coaching as well, because, you know, just as humans are just social learners, you know, that's how we have evolved. And I, I think that can be applied, the same principles can be applied to both coach education and coaching. So really interesting conversation and really excited to, to share it today. Well, we definitely covered a lot of ground today with Dr. Kovam. And I need to say that I have not been so familiar with the social learning theory before we discuss this topic today. And I do not know for those who are listening right now, how familiar you have been with the social learning theory and the concept and the application and the entire idea behind it. And it was definitely good to know to get the theory. And it was definitely also good to know that how actually does this apply to coaching and to coach education? And one thing I would like to add here, this episode is maybe more of a theoretical episode, or it is a more theoretical episode, but it definitely delivers fundamental information and fundamental pillars about the social learning theory and it helps definitely to understand everything better. And one thing I would like to add about what we have been discussing today with Dr. Diane Kova is that we also spoke a little bit about problem-based teaching problem-based teaching and for us as we are in an environment where problem-based teaching is applied it was definitely very interesting to compare and contrast it from a student and from a teacher perspective so we hope definitely that everyone who is listening right now will enjoy this conversation as much as we did with Dr. Diane Kova from Canada. Well, now we'd like to welcome on Dr. Diane Culver from the University of Ottawa. Dr. Culver, thanks so much for joining us today. How's everything going there? It's going well. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, we're excited to get you on the show today to talk about this idea of, of social learning theory and, and kind of how that can be applied to our work in coach education and, and just how to better educate our coaches and create social learning spaces. But before we dive into that, can you just give us a little bit of background about you and your research and your areas of interest and, and kind of how you found yourself working with social learning theory? Okay, sure. Um, well, I'm a coach originally, uh, still a coach. So I, I was an alpine ski coach for um, a couple of decades after uh, stopping competing at a high level. And um, <clears throat> I decided to go back to university to study more about, you know, the teaching and learning and psychology side of coaching. And that brought me to um, the University of Ottawa, where I studied uh, sports psychology and pedagogy. And after doing my master's thesis in coach-athlete communication, where I followed a, <clears throat> a junior national team and... Um, well, basically dug deep into their communication, uh, their beliefs about communication and good communication, and also um, where communication broke down. And it was really a fascinating experience, I think, for the coaches as well as for myself. And so I decided that I'd like to do research that um, really involved the researcher in the process. And this will kind of, I'll come back to this a bit when we talk about participatory uh, action research. But um, so at the time of my master's, I was still technically uh, trying to separate the researcher from the process, although it was in a qualitative paradigm. So we don't ever really believe that you can separate completely from the process. And when I started my PhD, I was introduced to the concept of communities of practice and the work of Etienne Wenger. His book, a 1998 book, had just been published. And when I learned, you know, kind of started to dig into it, I realized that that's really what I found was missing in my coach development experience. So when I'd started coaching, 
I, you know, like I said, I actually went very rapidly from retiring from high performance athlete to, to being like, I did one year as a kind of children's coach. And then I was asked to be an assistant at the national B team. And so that was, I thought, Oh, what a wonderful opportunity. I'm going to learn so much about coaching from all these other coaches around me. And actually after a few years, I was pretty disappointed because that didn't happen at all. There was, there just didn't seem to be that well, there was no possibility that there was no setup for people sharing and people, the other coaches were probably just too busy with what they're doing and maybe not interested in really talking about um, coach development. I don't know, but anyway, so I, I, you know, all I then went back and sort of left the national scene and went back and started working more at the regional and provincial level and did that for many years. And so when, when I, saw this social learning theory, it really answered my, it, it, it filled a gap as something that I thought, oh, this is what, this is what I think we need more of. And this is definitely what I was missing. So I had a kind of very intuitive um, connection with it right from the beginning. And I right away made my PhD uh, research um, centered around the theory and taking a much more collaborative participatory action research process uh, rather than a kind of s separate the researcher from the process type uh, approach. So I guess that's really kind of how I got into it. And so since then, which is really since 99, um, I've continued to work using that social learning approach and the collaborative or participatory action research approach to study a lot about coach development and sometimes applying the theory to other aspects of sport and coaching. And so, yeah, well, so for instance, recently we just did a project uh, with the Coaching Association of Canada about um, women in sport leadership and trying to increase uh, gender equity and develop the leadership um, skills of, of the women in not just coaches, but across different roles in sport. That's an example. Well, the first thing I want to touch on, because I found it very curious that you have been competing as alpine skier and that you have been coaching alpine skiing as well. I don't think that we ever had someone on the show who has been involved in that sport. It's a great sport. I really love to do it. I love down skiing. Um, but unfortunately in Finland, at least the region where I'm living, it's not that much possible, but just the freedom on the track, it's insane. So, and that you're actually able to compete on such a high level is, uh, it's very cool. I didn't know that, uh, even though we have been in touch before, before mm -hmm. our conversation and then the way how you got actually involved in the same sport. And then you did them, you did the bachelor's and the master's and then the PhD, it sounds very progressively. And now where you are, I think. All, all everything has been built up and I think also this leads to our conversation which we will have to you with you today and the mm -hmm. first thing we wanted to actually to talk to you about is that um, it's called participatory action research and first of all my question what is that <laughs> and yeah. how do we apply it uh, to coach education okay well so you know a little bit about my background so I mean uh, let's just say that uh, I actually started um, when I went to, because I had to go back to university and finish an undergraduate degree after, you know, 20 years or so of coaching. And I did it in psychology because I was thinking I wanted to study more about, you know, the psychological side of coaching. But then I chose at first an applied master's program because I was, I was a practitioner and I was very interested in applied. And if you mentioned research to me, you know, I had this common misconception that many students have that, you know, that research is, is really disconnected from practice. And that, that was not what I was interested in. But then of course, once I changed into the, into a thesis program, realizing that I wanted to do more than just an applied master's um, and realized that I could actually do applied research that, that impacted the practice of coaching, then I was fine with the concept of doing research. And so right from the get-go, I wanted to do research that impacted practice. So, you know, collaborative inquiry, which is a, a type of participatory action research is definitely the, the way to do that. 
um, because the end goal, well, first of all, the, you work with uh, the people in the practice context in the research process, and they're involved in it to a much greater degree than they would be in a more traditional research paradigm. So they, they actually shape to more or less extent the, the design of, of the actual research. And of course, the outcomes that you're seeking are driven by their, uh, their needs, not, not by the researchers' needs. So it's it's um, the reason that the, the 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 sort of global name of participatory action research is often associated with social justice projects and so on, where researchers will go into a community and work with the community to really um, affect social change. Uh, but there's lots of other uses of it, and so collaborative inquiry, which I've mentioned, uh, there's a little book uh, published in 2000 by Bray et al on collaborative inquiry. In this the case, it was educators um, engaging in a collaborative inquiry project. And so that, that to me, well, obviously coach education is a, one, one of its parent fields is education. So that spoke to me and, and it's, it's quite a sort of streamlined and simplified way of using the research the way we wanted to use it. And in addition um, to, to actually, um, yeah, to, to, to wanting to affect change through research, the collaborative inquiry participatory paradigm aligns very well with social learning theory. And I can explain that a little bit more when we get more into social learning theory. Well, just kind of a, a quick follow-up on that. Why is participatory action research, why is that more beneficial to a field like education or coach education than you know, your more traditional types of research? Well, of course, it all depends on your research question. There, there's certainly a place for more traditional types of research in the education field, depending on what you're looking at. Okay, so, I mean, if you're wanting to do a bunch of battery of questionnaires about, you know, uh, the impact of a certain uh, educational endeavor on students, then yeah, for sure, you might use a more post-positivist approach. Um, it's It depends on your research question, but if you're trying to, we're talking about coach development and coach learning, right? So uh, more modern theories of learning, um, such as constructivist theory, are based around the needs of the learner because in the constructivist paradigm, it's the learner or the constructivist view of learning, it's the learner that really controls what's learned. It's, it's the educators can only create the context for learning, but just like whoever's listening to this podcast, I mean, they all come in and this will touch, this will move towards the question on uh, Peter Jarvis and lifelong learning, but everybody comes to a learning situation with their previous experiences. And so they, they don't enter the, the learning opportunity with the same orientation towards learning and the same previous experience. And that, that will affect what they take away from the learning situation. So in collaborative inquiry, what happens is that you, we, we, we see reality as participative and as co-created by the mind of the individuals involved in it and the surrounding environment. And it, it is a, actually a process of cycles of reflection and action that shape the experiences of the, um, of the actors. So in that way, the, the researchers or initiating researchers, they're sometimes called, and the participants who are sometimes called co-researchers, co-construct knowledge every time they engage with each other. So every data generation opportunity is also believed to have a potential impact on the participants learning and, and subsequently at, you know, eventually down the road, potentially their actions or even immediately their actions. Okay, that sounds, it sounds like a, a really interesting way to, to do research. And, and it sounds a lot like an idea I had for or a method I would use for my my bachelor's thesis here, but that's a, a whole nother story. But it's 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 really interesting. And 
Now I want to dive into to something else you mentioned, um, Peter Jarvis's kind of dimensions of, of learning. So would you dive into those and, and explain those and then also how they kind of relate to this overarching theme that we'll get to of, of social learning theory? Yes. Okay. So, um, so Peter Jarvis is a very prolific writer in the field of um, education, learning, adult learning. And um, he actually wrote a trilogy in the mid 2000s um, called, it's like something about a comprehensive theory of human learning. And basically the first book goes through all the different theories of human learning that you would study about if you took a, for instance, a psychology course in learning. So talking about behavioralism and um, operant learning and, and so on. But uh, at the end, he, he essentially says, it's almost impossible to come up with one theory of human learning, but regardless of that, he, he, does, he does have a definition about lifelong learning, which is that um, we, it's based around some fundamental ideas that you need to know about. So one is something called, what he calls the biography of every learner. And I alluded to this before. So what is the biography of every learner? The biography of every learner is the sum of all their previous experiences. So every time you experience something, your biography changes. So as we're doing this podcast, the two of you, your biographies are changing. As people are listening to the podcast, their biography is changing. Okay, so, and as I said, the biography will also affect how the learner approaches a learning situation. So for example, I'll take an example from my master's thesis actually, when I wasn't using the participatory paradigm, but um, in ski racing, uh, a standard tool is the radio. Okay, so coaches use radios to communicate with each other on the hill and communicate with their athletes. And a pretty standard uh, way of using the radio around competition is that there will be coaches on the pissed on the course and there will be someone at the top and often before a skier goes a few minutes before or 10 minutes before there'll be a, a communication with the athlete on the radio from the coaches so uh these these pieces of um communication usually involve two elements one is often an element about the state of the course so you know either either the actual course set yeah, it's exactly like we saw, you know, you can take this line that we were talking about, no problem, or it could be related to conditions. So, you know, it's, everything's good. Just, you know, make sure you really be careful with that one spot we talked about, because it is like really, really, really icy. So that would be the, the, the uh, kind of course condition content. And then the other part of the content is usually some kind of motivational, um, you know, like you got this, you know, go for it, or this is yours to win or whatever, something like that. So when I was studying this uh, during, during this competition, at one point I was standing beside the coach that was on the course and he radios up to the top as one woman and says, okay, the course, uh, the course is a lot less turny than we thought. You, you can go a lot straighter. You can take a straighter line. Uh, yeah, and you got this, go for it. Okay, so after the race, uh, after that run, I was kind of following the coach around and he walks up to that young woman and he goes, so what do you think of your run? And she says, well, the course was a lot less turny than I thought. And he didn't say anything. And I'm so that obviously I'm thinking to myself, wow, <laughs> that's exactly the message he gave her. And she clearly did not hear that message because you know, what she said showed that she didn't hear the message, right? So I, I let that go for the rest of the day. She had another run to compete in. And then I said, I got to get to the bottom of this. So I, I interviewed her afterwards and I asked her, what did you hear the coach say on the radio? And she said, oh, I don't listen to anything they say. And previous, my, my experience tells me that, you know, it's very unhelpful and it's often just a bunch of bullshit. So, so pardon the language, but um, this was absolutely, you know, a, I was well before I was familiar with Jarvis's theory, but it's a perfect example of how a person's previous experiences, i.e. their biography, will affect their orientation to learning. Because if she had listened, you know, 
to what he'd said, then she would have gone straighter and she would have been faster. That's, that's, so that's the biography. I guess you want me to continue on with Jarvis. So I'll continue on. Um, okay, so the other important concept that Jarvis talks about is, a, is disjuncture. So what disjuncture is, is what happened to me when I heard her say that to the coach, that was disjuncture because all of a sudden I went, whoa, okay. Uh, These previous experiences of mine are not matching up. Like I heard the coach say that. So why did she not hear it? So I, I use that disjuncture as my starting point for learning. So that's what disjuncture is. You, you, your previous experiences do not, allow you to understand the current situation. So there's an opportunity for you to learn. Now, not everybody's gonna take every opportunity to learn. You may not, you may decide that, you know, that's not something that interests you. So you just don't learn. You just decide to put it aside. But disjuncture is the trigger for potential learning, okay? Um, so what Jarvis then says is, because he's a constructivist, like I told you, the constructivist believes that the learner is in charge of, of, of what they take away from a situation. So, and, and Jennifer Moon is another, she's a British auth, uh, researcher who's done a lot of work in this department. She, she, instead of biography, she calls it cognitive structure. Okay, and so if you imagine your cognitive structure of your brain is that your brain is made up of all these different concepts which are connected in different ways okay and this also gets back to the work by the way constructivism gets back to the work of piaget Um, because when when you're presented with a new idea or a new concept and you do decide that you know you're going to well it it enters into you you notice it it enters into your uh consciousness um what can happen there and is that the idea based on your current biography can be assimilated into it, but your your biography, in other words, your whole network of concepts controls how that happens. Okay, so it's not, that's why you don't always have the same, you know, outcome as everybody has a different outcome, okay? And, and then what happens once the, the idea can be changed as it's as it's assimilated into your, biography or cognitive structure. And then of course your cognitive structure or your biography biography accommodates to that. So there's these two processes of assimilation and accommodation, all right? So what Jarvis says is that um, what happens is that in some way when we learn either emotionally, cognitively and or practically the concept is it will change your biography or your cognitive structure and you leave a different person. When we are educating coaches, how, what, what is the best way to go about accounting for someone's biography? And, and, and what I mean by that is like, there, everyone's a unique individual, right? We all have a very, very different biography, especially when it comes to learning. And I know, for example, like coming from the, the US and my educational background there, and how we were taught and how we learned there is very different than how we're taught and how we're learned here, right? So just how do we, how do we, what's, is there any best practices, best advice or anything like that to account for those individual differences in biographies? Well, that's a fun, wonderful question. Um, and this gets right to the, the heart of what we call learner-centered, um, you know, teaching. It is a challenge. It is more complicated. It takes. It's interesting because the role of the uh, instructor in learner-centered teaching could appear on the surface as being less because you try and give more control to the learner, but it's not less work because you've got a lot more to think about and a lot more prep to do. And but it's kind of behind-the-scenes stuff. Um. So. I mean, I think one thing, and this is kind of a little stepping up a little bit of to a more meta level than your, what your question is actually asking, is that certainly myself, and now I've seen it in the literature as well, in terms of learner-centered teaching, and also even um, recently, the most recent work of uh, Wenger and Trainer on social learning theory, they, they recommend this as a something to do when you're creating a social learning space or a community practice is that 
to actually kind of engage the the participants in a bit of a reflection and potentially education process about this way of learning. Okay, so somebody who comes from, I'm going to say, let's say you come from a more traditional approach to education where there's a, you know, it's, I mean, to take it to the extreme, we say the traditional approach is that there's an expert, a teacher who decides what the students need to learn, what order they need to learn it in, and they deliver this content. And the learner is like this empty vessel that the content's meant to just go in, get absorbed into. And I mean, one of the main uh, issues with that in terms of people that want to see changes in practice when, through, through education is that it's entirely up to the learner to take those bits and pieces of knowledge and transfer them into the practical situation. Um, so they're not actually, you know, I mean, things like co-ops and so on help with this a lot, right? But in a traditional setting where you're just in the classroom, you know, getting lectured to and trying to study facts and memorize things, you're not engaging in, in practice with support. So I would definitely, I, I mean, it's funny because I teach coaching class and it's a problem-based approach. And in, in our program, most of our students are used to a traditional approach when they come in. Um, they're in human kinetics, kinesiology. And, and so it took me about four years to realize that I had to start my, my whole course off with a few lectures on learning, you know, to kind of set them up for it because they just, you know, most students want to know, you know, tell me what I need to do to get the mark. <clears throat> so there's that. And then in terms of, I mean, what we, you know, recommend is that at the very least, an uh, a coach educator or developer, if they're going to have a session with coaches, is that they would get a little bit of a biography of each student before. So a simple way to do that, that, that uh, we've been using in a master's class uh, is that we, we, we send out a little uh, template of, it's like your, your autobiography as a book, but all you're doing is putting chapter headings. So you, they, a person engages in, 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 a, in you know, a kind of a, a view of their life that's gotten to the point where they're at in the program and they put chapter headings in for things that have influenced them. And this at least gets them thinking about how they got to be the person that they are. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a, one way you can start it, but very, you know, I always try and find out, you know, who's in the room before, but it's not always possible and easy. And by the way, when you're, if you're trying to facilitate a community of practice, or you should be doing the same thing, you should know something about, you should interview and do your research before about each of the participants. So now you have just explained something that caught my attention because you mentioned, first of all, you mentioned learner-based teaching, and then you mentioned problem-based teaching and that a lot of students when they come to your class and to university that they struggle with this approach they come to you and ask why are we doing it this way can we why, why can we not have traditional teaching and I need to say that from my experience I can relate to this experience as well because if you have been for 13 years in a school environment where you're instructing is simply instructing. So there's just someone staying at the whiteboard is giving you the information or you as a student, you just run a presentation, you collect information and you present it to the others and it's not very interactive, engaging, then that can be a challenge at the beginning. And also, especially here in Viromeki, it's very thought provoking to think about that actually here, a lot of people from different cultures meet, right? But one thing is very similar that they have been all in that traditional teaching environment where, as I've been explained, the instructor is basically instructing. And from your experience as, a, as an instructor, I do not know how long your course is, your teaching, how, how many years, something like that, but How much time does it take students to adapt to this kind of teaching style? And did you ever have the feeling that some of the students after a while they, they went into the classroom and they were like, 
act, they did not understand at all why you teach this way. And after, let's say, one year, you, you saw a light bulb uh, <laughs> going up in there. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I mean, this the, the, our courses last, um, you know, 13 weeks, roughly. Um, so I don't, you know, we, we only have three real coaching courses in our undergrad grad. And I, I will often, I always teach the, the first one, which has got more students in it. And then I teach the second one or the third one. And sometimes I teach the, the, the second one, but not always, sometimes someone else teaches it. So the thing is that we use, um, I guess in a way they're kind of forced to, to a certain extent at least engage in the process because it's a problem-based approach and because they have workbooks. These workbooks are produced by the uh, Coaching Association of Canada. So we're actually integrating our national coaching certification program modules into our university classes and then mixing it up with some extra material as well. But, you, you know, they have, I mean, I think ultimately it's like anything, right? You have to explain to them that they will get out of it what they put into it. And it really is true. Um, so, you know, you, you see people at the beginning, they don't want to write in their workbooks because they think it's got to write the perfect thing in the workbook right away, because I'm going to look at their workbook at the end of the term. And I, I try to explain, that's not the idea. The idea is to write something in there and to reflect on it. And, you know, you don't need to have the perfect answer. You're in a class where you're learning about coaching. You don't have to have the perfect answer. So people that are perfectionists and want to get like an A, they are really hesitant to engage in that process. Um, but I mean, I, I don't, you know, have a measure of that. I can say that people really get it, except that I know at the end of class, I get comments and people say, wow, I, I learn a lot in this class. I really feel like I'm taking away from it practical things. So we have an internship possibility at the fourth year so they can engage with the community in a hundred hour internship. And one of the things that the person running that internship does is they ask them before they do their internship, what they think, which courses they think are going to help them in their internship. And then they ask at the end, which courses actually did they believe use material from in their internship. So these internships can be in, you know, helping seniors in community center or assistant coaching or helping with a phys ed teacher. I mean, it's a pretty broad range of possibilities. It could even be in a sport management situation, but often anybody who's doing an intervention type internship, they, if they've taken the coaching course, they will say, yeah, this really was helpful to me. It helped me learn how to think about designing an activity and to think about communication and, and how people learn and stuff. So that's really the only, you know, that and the comments that I get from students at the end, the only measure I really have. Obviously when people, it's, it's a class where it, if you don't engage, you won't do well. Most people do pretty well in the class. They, it's not a hard class to get a good mark in, but it's a lot of work. You have to do the work to get a good grade. So, um, I, I do think that sometimes you do see people switch, you know, so like after maybe a one third of the way through, suddenly you'll, you'll, the kind of questions that students are asking you and you're realizing that they're starting to get it, which is, which is fun. It's interesting. You know, we just don't have like programs like engineering and medicine. They do a lot of problem-based work, but in our, our students don't have that experience much. Yeah. I have to, I have to say here that it, it, it sounds a lot like we we have a very learner centered environment here to learn in and, and and now I'm like I'm thinking back and, and I remember our first classes is just a description of how the the program works how the classes work how you're going to learn and, and how much cooperation with other classmates and other um, other students you're going to have to have in order to in order to succeed really in in the program and and that when you when you mention that thing about the perfectionists and, and how they they want to do you know really well in their notebooks and everything like that I chuckled because I, I think that's how I came in to this program and and then you you start to realize as you're as you're getting used to this environment you start to realize that it doesn't have to be perfect you know to the textbook it has to be it has to be useful to you and and where you're at and everything like that so that's a 
I, I, I really connected with that bit. And I, I was chuckling to myself because thinking back, I can't believe I was, I was approaching it like that. But anyway, <laughs> um, we want to, we want to jump in now into what we've been kind of alluding to for a little bit. Now, this idea of social learning theory. Um, that's mm-hmm. a, I, I have to admit, that's a, a pretty new topic for me. So can you kind of just give a background on that uh, and kind of, and, and just what it is really? Yeah. Okay. So um, I guess I'll go back a bit to the start of, I mean, it, okay. It does way go way back into, you know, psychologists uh, in Eastern European countries like uh, Vygotsky and so on. It's related to those concepts. Um, but when it really uh, came to the fore, I mean, the first book that Wenger published was with uh, Jean Lave. They're both anthropologists. Um, and they were interested in, you know, learning and changing how we view education. And so their 1991 book, which is called Situated Learning, um, which it's kind of considered the phase one of the theory, they studied apprenticeships. So they looked at uh, how midwives in the Yucatan Peninsula learned to become midwives for example, or tailors in Indonesia, you know, in a small market, how they learn to be. So that, that idea of, of situated learning, learning in the practice and moving from the periphery of the practice to the center. So for instance, um, that's called legitimate peripheral participation. It's legitimate because it's endorsed by a master. Uh, and, and it's, starts as a peripheral participation. So usually starting with low risk activities, moving towards what we call higher risk or more um, risk in the sense of uh, loss if you make a mistake. So the example would be like a tailor would start, you know, apprentice tailor is gonna sew on the buttons at the end. They're not gonna give them tail, the apprentice a pair of scissors to cut the cloth, right? Because that's an expensive mistake. If you make a mistake cutting the cloth, you're you're you know, you're basically in deep trouble for the garment that you're trying to make, right? So so there in the situated learning, the whole activity is that the learning is not separated from the activity um, in which you're gonna use it. Okay, so remember earlier on, I talked about the problem with, the, with the, the accumulation view of learning is that the expert just gives you these bricks of knowledge and then it's up to you to figure out how to use it. So, so that's the first phase. Now, um, in that phase, in it, you could call that a community of practice that the apprentice is learning in, but if it's highly regulated by the master and there's no negotiation of meaning or changing to the practice because there's no need for it, uh, for example, a traditional martial arts versus something like jujitsu, which is all about adapting you know, reacting and adapting, that, that that doesn't need to involve any negotiation of meaning or, you know, the competency is clearly defined and you become a competent uh, practitioner if you adhere to what the practice says is competent practice. So phase two of the theory, which is really based around the 1998 book of Communities of Practice, uh, Wenger, uh, goes beyond that and really looks at how members in a community of practice advance the practice, how they co-create knowledge, how they take knowledge that is perhaps more generic to a certain practice and adapt it to the very specifics of their own practice. Okay, so in a phase two community of practice, you're going beyond existing knowledge sometimes. You're going places where maybe you haven't been before or nobody's been before. Um, And that sounds kind of grand, but it doesn't have to be a huge thing. It can be a small way of doing something that is just more context appropriate and works better in your setting. Um, And then so after phase two and a lot of work, they've sort of moved towards um, the the idea that the body of knowledge in any profession is rarely held within a single community of practice. So 
the example that they give for that is like they went, they they kind of thought about this idea. It sort of struck them. I'm talking about Wenger and Trainer, who were married, so they both call each other Wenger Trainer. I mean, they're Beverly and Etienne Wenger Trainer. <laughs> uh, they said they were, you know, they were sitting in their lawyer's office one day, and the the whole back wall of the lawyer's office was filled with these volumes and volumes of code and, you know, legal legal uh, documents. And they thought to themselves, okay, well, there's no way one, one particular lawyer knows everything there is to know about law. Like there's actually little communities. So there's like people that are in family law, there's people that are in corporate law and then even more specialized tax law and whatever. And so they realized that actually, if you look at the whole landscape, like, so you look at a profession as a landscape, which has a number of different communities of practice and other social learning spaces, which I'll talk about in a second, including the networks that connect various communities of practice, then, then you have a better representation of what a professions looks like. Okay. So for coaching, we can think about, you know, you want to work with, uh, well, actually I will take the Alberta women in sport leadership project as an example. Okay. So we're trying to change and move gender equity is, is, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time and it's still in sport. We got a long way to go. Right. So this particular project took a landscape approach because it was funded right from the top of the Canadian government through a national sport organization, which is the Coaching Association of Canada, to work with one province in Canada. So it was happened to be the province of Alberta to work with their organization that organizes all of coach education and sport. And from there to work with 12 sport leaders from different sport organizations in Alberta, who each of them had to have a gender equity leadership development project within their own organization. So you can see the, the multiple levels there. So that, that is a landscape approach. Um, and so by facilitating this and actually engaging some mentors who we trained a little bit in social learning theory as to become social learning leaders, who then worked with this community of practice of 12 sport leaders who met over a period of a couple of years and talked about their projects and got ideas and shared ideas and so on. So we have data that goes right from the participants of those projects up through the sport leaders to the mentors, to the leader from the Coaching Association of Canada. So it's a, it's a multi-level landscape approach to increasing gender equity and leadership development for women in sport. Does that kind of give you an idea of what a landscape looks like? Yeah. In sport? Yeah, for sure. And, and actually I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that study because one of the, um, one of the things I was thinking about when you first described that at the beginning is, and, and what I'm curious about is um, what, what, were, what were the results of that study? What, what was like, um, I don't know if results is the right word in a sense, but what, what was found or what was the objective and, and what, have, what has been learned from that and what's being kind of implemented because of it? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, okay. Uh, I'm going to actually answer your question by going back a bit to a little bit more about social learning theory because another development in social learning theory is the creation of what they call the value creation framework. So um, they, they, the, the Wenger trainers do a lot of work with large organizations, you know, like the World Bank and the Gates Foundation and, you know, companies like Chevron and so on. And those companies tend to want to see uh, some kind of proof that the money they've invested in this is getting something, you know, somewhere. So, and it's, it's not easy to, to, you know, absolutely causally, just like in coach education, it's very difficult to look at a program that you deliver to coaches and then, you know, two or three months down the road or whatever, see proof that the change in a coach's practice was related to that coach development opportunity. Right. So they had the same problem. How do we, how do we show that um, changes to practice are related to participation in a social learning space or a community practice? Um, so they developed this framework for that, which looks at two different kinds of data. One is effect data, which is really, it could be like organizational data that is out there, like changes in numbers of participants. For instance, 
are there more women participating in our coach development courses? Uh, are there more women referees in soccer now because of this program that we initiated? Um, and other, other, I mean, it doesn't have to be just numbers of, but there's, for instance, participation in meetings. How many, how many participants participated in meetings? How many participants visited a website where we, which we used as a shared learning space, uh, comments, posts, and so on. And then the other type of data, so that was effect data. The other type of data is contribution data. So the contribution data tries to draw a plausible line between the social learning activities, the community of practice activities, social learning space activities, and certain value created, okay? So it's a story, the story that helps us say that, you know what? This change in the number of women referees can, can plausibly be related to the activity that we created in our social learning space. So, you know, for instance, giving, let's say, uh, training, not just about the technical and tactical sides of being a referee in soccer, but also communication, how to present yourself, how to speak within a group can change. This is an example. There's a, a video clip of this young woman who went to referee training and she talks about how, you know what, now she said, I'm not a very big person. She's actually quite petite, but she says, I, I know that I know my stuff. I feel I can walk into a room full of men who are older than me, much bigger physically than me, and I can use my voice because I know what I have to say is, is worth contributing. So that's a story that says, wow, okay, it's quite plausible that she got some of that from some of these activities like assertiveness training, for instance, I might say that she had as a part of this social learning space. So we use this value creation framework to help us try and demonstrate uh, what what outcomes were created, you know, from this project. But one thing is like, so the value creation framework has like immediate value, which is just related to, wow, this is just so great to be in a room with other people that care about the same things I care about. And then potential value is that, and actually after the first meeting, I came away from there with, with a bunch of drills that I could potentially use in my coaching practice. And then applied value would be if that coach then actually tried applying some of that and realized would be that they did it and it worked and the athletes actually, you know, the team had better outcomes or whatever. And then there's what's called transformative value, which is where you completely have a, like a, a transformation of your beliefs about something. So an instance of that that we had in one um, community of practice was, it was for women coaches in the NCAA. And one of them said, after participating in this group, you know, I love coaching and I've always wanted to do it as a career, but I also wanted to have a family and I just didn't see how I could do it. But now that I've been part of this community and I see other women that are doing this job and have a family, I realize that I can, I can actually have both. So that's like a transformative value that that person experienced. And then there are other elements that you can use, like there's enabling and strategic value, which are very important for creating the possibility value can be created in different cycles. So strategic value might be that you need to talk to a certain organization about something to, to make sure they have buy-in for doing a certain project or a certain activity. And then you might need some enabling value. So let's say you wanted to do an online community practice with wheelchair curling in Canada like we did. Well, wheelchair curling provided the platform for that. And this is well before uh, the COVID, but we had people from six different time zones and we used their platform license, which was GoToMeeting at the time. So that's an example of enabling value. So it's a lot to absorb in a short period of time, but um, that's how we try. And that process of, a, of investigating the value is in, in and of itself a learning experience, not just for us, but also for the people involved in it, the participants, because it's a helps them reflect on those cycles of action and reflection and what is what that has done for them in terms of their practice. Okay, so exactly what I was afraid of happening today happened. And now I think I'm going to spend the next two or three weeks just researching social learning theory and everything that we talked about today, because it, it's, it's such an interesting topic for me. And, and 
especially around the coach education field. I, I think it has a lot of, a lot of value and, and, and a lot of uses. Um, unfortunately, we don't have too much more time today. And, and, and it's something that I would love to explore with you again in the future and maybe a part two. Mm -hmm. But for now, we just have one final question for you. Um, just any, I know we didn't get too much into the, the practical side with the social learning spaces and everything like that today. But do you have any kind of final messages related to social learning theory or uh, lifelong learning or kind of anything else that we talked about today that you'd like to, to share with us or our listeners? Sure. Um, first of all, I'd like to say that I think probably the way that you're, I, I don't know for sure, but from what I've heard you saying about the program and what I've heard about it previously, I think your program is set up as a, to create these social learning spaces for you. Um, it sound, sounds like that's what your, uh, the program leaders are trying to do. Um, I mean, I think that what, you know, whether you're, you're a coach working with your athletes um, or you're a coach developer working with coaches, I think the, the, the basic tenets are that to remember that um, fundamentally we are social beings. We, we historically, well before there was any such thing as writing, let alone schools or anything like that. And you think back to, you know, cave people, we learned by interacting with others in the environment. And, and it was all about the practical, like, you know, saving ourselves and getting food and, and living. Like we wouldn't be here right now if we weren't good social learners. So it is a very, very innate way to learn. It's just that our system of education has kind of sort of pushed it out of us. Um, but that's why people, when you get them together and you, they're in a group of people that care about the same thing they care about, it, they want to make a difference. And it's, it's in and of itself, it's such great value because they appreciate that, wow, yeah, here's a bunch of people that really have the same concerns or similar concerns that I do. Um, so, I mean, you do get people that don't want to share. I mean, coaching, that's a big thing. Like it's a competitive sport and coaches compete against each other, right? For jobs. Uh, but if you can, if you can, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, Olympic level coaches. You're not going to have a community of practice of, you know, the Canadian U.S. hockey coaches right before the Olympics. <laughs> right <laughs> but but below that level really we're all about developing so we should be able to manufacture it somehow and often at the high performance level the best way to go about it is to get a bunch of high performance coaches from different sports together because there's a lot they can learn from each other you know this is not the technical stuff this is gone you know the other stuff so i guess that's that's what i'd say to finish off yeah yeah well great final message and and Dr. Culver, thanks very much for joining us and, and taking time out of your busy schedule. We, we really appreciate it. And, and I think we, we learned a lot and sparked a lot of curiosity. So yeah, just one more time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And if, you know, if any of your listeners have questions, you know, you can feel free to send them my way by email and I'll try and respond. I always try and help people understand this theory because I do think it's really beneficial for our field. Great. Great. Thanks. So one more time, thanks to Dr. Kova for taking the time and joining our show. And we hope that everyone who has been listening to the conversation has now understood a little bit the concept behind the social learning theory better and has taken something away from the conversation today. And the first point I would like to touch with you on here today, Derek, is that um, the idea of that the Chicada can only create the content for the learners. And then it's up to the learner how he's actually picking it up. I think this is a very essential point. And I think this also reflects on the way how Dr. Kova is teaching in her program, her university. And this also reflects on how we as students and overall as human beings are learning. Yeah, for sure. And I think it goes back to that old adage, like you can you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And, and I think that's a... A simplified way of putting it but it, it really hits the nail on the head right like and it, it goes back to this idea of of coaches as the environmental architects right and, and just creating the environment for their athletes to learn and and it was interesting to hear that from a, a coach education standpoint right and and as coaches we are just kind of designing the environment or coach developers we are just designing the environment for our coaches to learn in 
And I think that was a, a really interesting concept and something that, that excites me and hopefully my future of being a, a coach developer. The first thing I wanted to bring up here is just the idea of this biography of the learner, right? And, and, and how that plays into the environment that you create for the learner. Uh, everyone has their unique biography, right? No, no two individuals could write their own uh, the, a similar autobiography. Everyone has their own experiences, their own social, cultural constraints and everything like that. And I think that's so interesting. And, and she talked about how we can account for that in our coach education. And, and I really like the idea of having the participants write a book chapter about themselves or the title of a book chapter about themselves. Because that's, it gets, not only does it get the learner thinking about who they are and the experiences that they've had and not, and beyond that, how they learn, but it also provides the coach educator with the information they need to get to know the learner, to get to know how they learn, how their experiences have, experiences have impacted that and everything like that. So a really interesting idea that I might even steal and, and use for a team in the future and with the athletes, because I think it'd be kind of fun for the, the athletes to come up with a a book chapter, a book title, or a short little news clipping of, of who they are, right? And that's a, a good way to, to get to know them, I think. I think that also reflects on the other point she made in the conversation is that your previous experience does not allow you to understand your current experience because now with your, basically with your biography, when you write it down, then you have the opportunity to reflect on it and then you have the opportunity to understand your current experience. And from a coaching perspective, I think when we have our athletes, I think then what it does is that it gives our athletes um, standpoint. What I mean by this, it gives them, it shows them where they currently are and what are, what are the actions they maybe need to take to improve their learning. And I think this point is also so essential because it really helps to, <laughs> To continuously to reflect all the time on the things you do obviously i think this is this is a point maybe you cannot do every day or maybe not every month because a lot of things happening and a lot of learning takes a lot of time but once every half year i don't know i'm i really this is just guessing my own thoughts because um if we think about us as human beings i mean if i take myself i'm currently 23 and you are as well and in these time we have we have had so many different experiences. Um, we are both from different backgrounds, have different cultural experience. Our hockey experience has been totally different. Our educational has been experience has been totally different. So that's why, first of all, it's very individual. And secondly, um, I think there needs to be a good amount of time in between so you're capable of really getting good amount of information out of it which can help you to enhance your learning and to evaluate where you currently are. Yeah, for sure. I think it's important for individuals to be aware of, you know, their previous experiences, right? And, and writing those down and, and maybe formalizing them and thinking of them. And, and definitely, like, it definitely helps to understand how you learn. And it, it's such an interesting concept. Uh, and it's very learner-centered to, to appreciate that of your learners. And say, for example, like, you know, maybe this student over here learns better with kind of a more, if I can call it, uh, the American style of, of teaching where it's just teacher led um, presentations, lectures, everything like that, kind of like my first university experience. And then this student over here learns better in a problem based teaching environment like we do have here in, in Hagahelia. And I think that's such an interesting uh, perspective on learner center approach because it, it truly is learner center because it's, it's how they learn. And I, I think the um, other thing that I wanted to talk about there with the reflection, especially for coaches is, is this idea of a community of practice. And I, I think that's, that's a crucial thing for a coach to be a part of, right? And it, it doesn't have to be a formal community of practice. It could just be um, for example, a couple of your friends that are also coaches, you get together and you, you talk about coaching, your experiences in it, and how you're kind of trying out new ideas or anything like that. And I think Dr. Gilbert, when he was on the show, uh, provided a good example of that too. You know, you just get with your little network of coaches and, and you can try out ideas before you even try them out. You can pitch them to other coaches and say like, hey, I've got this idea. 
what do you think of that? They give you feedback, the idea is better, and then you can go implement it with your team or your, your, your learners. And I think that that idea of a community of practice can be so powerful, in a, especially in a coach's early career, uh, just to get an idea of who they are, the ideas that they have, and how they can be implementing them. Well, I think that also reflects on the one point she said during our conversation is that the learning is not separate from the activity. And the reason why I think this ties in so well is ties in so well to the idea of community com communities of practices because then basically uh, together with a bunch of people in a, in a room in a social environment and where you basically bounce back ideas and then if we take our example here in Biromeki um, again can emphasize only one more time um, that there are so many different cultures and then if you sit with people from so many different cultures from so many different nations um, around one table and then everyone's idea or again then everyone's biography has been a little bit different so everyone can contribute different things from a different perspective to the table and I think this is this is very valuable and we should definitely not underrate these points because the more experience we can get and the more perspectives um, we we as both uh, we as individuals can can strengthen our horizon and this is uh, very valuable. And the other point I wanted to touch on as well is that basically that problem-based teaching. And for me, it was um, very good that we talked with her about this as well, because she's practicing it in her own environment. And um, for example, for myself, I need to say, based on my own experience, I need to say that in the beginning, I've, I, ha I have had a lot of struggles with it. <laughs> um, it took a lot of time until I understood the concepts. Um, and But then it was very good for me that we asked her as well, that basically once she's doing it with some students, if she sometimes sees a light bulb, and I think this also shows that how much time it actually takes that until some students understand um, problem-based teaching because again it everything depends on the environment where if you've been what your educational background has been and everything like that because I need to say that from my educational side I can say from my experience that school wasn't always easy for me <laughs> when I went to when I went to high school I I, I can like honestly in the my last year of high school when I graduated I I was one of the worst students on the paper. I don't consider myself in that in that sense as a worst student that I don't have a certain attitude, but uh, marks and everything like that, it <laughs> it wasn't that good. So I think this is um, very essential if we talk about this as well. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think what you, you, what you said there is, is spot on to our experience here as well. And she mentioned it in the episode and, and I talked about it a little bit as well as um, when we first start, our first couple lectures is just on how the program is run, how we are going to learn, how we are going to work. And, and it, it sets the stage for a, a really exciting two years in the program. But it, it is, is a struggle for a lot of students, I think, coming in because it is so unique and so different than a lot of educational backgrounds. And I think that adjustment period is so hard for a, a lot of us because... You know, we come from an educational background that kind of breeds this unhealthy competition between students, right? Like, hey, I got a better grade on this. I'm smarter than you because I got a better grade on this and everything like that. And it's not, you know, that, that traditional sense is not comparing students to themselves. It's comparing students to others. And and I think that such the, the problem based is so um, there's such a potential there for learning because it just compares the student on where they are and how much they have learned. And, and the idea that the, the work doesn't need to be done perfectly. It just needs to be done to, to your perfect, which is where it helps you. You know, you want to put your full effort into this so that you get the most out of it. It doesn't mean it has to be perfect compared to everybody else's. It means it just has to help you become a better coach. And I think that's such a an interesting potential that this this type of learning has and and i'm excited that i've experienced it for two years and and i can kind of turn it around and, and use it in the real world once i leave and it's it's something that i think as you know humans develop as coach education develops it's going to become more and more popular 
and and definitely have more and more of an impact for sure. Yeah, and overall, one hundred percent. I have the same thoughts on this, and I think this is something we discuss a lot um, here about how we actually have the opportunity to help each individual that this person can get the best out of his um, experience and that actually this person can develop. And I think the last point I want to mention is that basically her final message is that historically we are social beings. And it's funny that she brought it up because that I was reading in some book or somewhere something about um, I think it was in mindset, but I'm not 100% sure about human beings and how they interact and about relationships. And then I was thinking by myself that actually we, we as we as humans, we are not just only human human beings. We are social beings. We have the need to socialize. We have the need to be with other people together. We have the need to speak. We have the need to exchange ideas. We just have the need to to be in an environment where other peoples are and to talk and really where we have the opportunities to socialize. And I think if you think about COVID right now, this has been pretty difficult for everyone. Of course, it's an exceptional situation, but at the end of the day, we are social beings and we still have the needs. It's our historically and um, embedded need that we want to have these interactions, conversations, discussions, everything, and just be with people and just spend time with them. I think that's, um, that's for me the most valuable point you brought up in the conversation. Yeah, I think so too. And you're spot on, right? Like this idea that we evolved as social creatures and, and just learning from not only each other, but also the environment. There's, there's a lot to be said in that. And I think it was a very impactful final message by Dr. Culver. Uh, but I think that's a, a good place to wrap it up for today's episode. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, make sure you check out some more work on the social learning theory. As we mentioned at the end of the interview, we, we hope to get Dr. Culver back on for a more pr- practical episode so we can kind of dive into some of the usage of social learning theory and creating social learning spaces. Uh, but until then, thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.